What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Joe Bonamassa here with another exciting episode of Live from Nerdville. Today, I am broadcasting from our rehearsal facility here in Nashville, Tennessee, and we're putting the big rig back together, as you can see. But alas, that is not important because today, my special guest is none other than Rock and Roll Hall of Fame member for his work with Aerosmith, my friend and yours, Mr. Brad Whitford. Thank you very much for doing this. Thanks, Joe. It's great to be on the show. I, I, I love what you're doing. It's, it's really cool, and you're getting rave reviews as well. You know, it's something to do during the off times. Um, how have you been adjusting to being off the road? Because, you know, you guys had that residency in Vegas, and, yeah. uh, you know, that was, you know, keeping you guys busy when you weren't touring, and then all of a sudden, like everybody else, it was just this gigantic brick wall. Well, I have no problem with it. I've, you know, I've always been a homebody. Touring was always a real, um, not very healthy for me. Um, you know, it, it uh, so I, I like being at home. And of course, after 50 years of doing that, it's like, right. okay, I'm ready to, I'm ready to start a new chapter in my life. You know, yeah. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to die in a hotel room somewhere <laughs> they're nice hotels but i get it you know you know yeah, to die in a four seasons or the ritz would be okay i guess but <laughs> you know i always wonder it's like one of the things i always wondered like you know you, you go into these really nice hotels and it and it, they have everything it's all you know it's all laid out for you and and you just like if your mind wonders like like i wonder if anybody's ever died in this room you know because they won't tell you that you know and no, it's happened. You've been in, we've been in plenty of hotel rooms where it's been, you know, uh, and they've had to call in that cleanup squad sort of thing, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> have, have you ever, I know this is an odd topic to start off, you know, uh, an interview with. Have you ever been in a hotel room on the road that you felt was haunted? Was co- You were convinced, felt like a little off? Well, there was one that, uh, I think it was somewhere in Ohio that was famously haunted. Um, but, uh, I think pretty much they're, they're all haunted. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, everywhere you go. Um, um, I mean, there's, to me, a fact of life, there's spirits with you all the time. And, uh, so I think it's all haunted, you know, mostly friendly spirits. So I had, a, I had an incident in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. We were staying at what they would, they were, they had rebranded this old hotel, um, the, they rebranded it the Renaissance. So it was like the only hotel by the, by the venue. And we get there late at night and I get in and I, and, and at about four o'clock in the morning, I, I feel like there's something in the room with me. And it, 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 it was just the oddest feeling. And I'm not really sensitive to that kind of thing. It was the oddest feeling. I freaked out. I put all the lights on and I went down and I slept on the bus. I said, I, I go, I know the bus is not haunted. I, I'm, I'm getting, I'm, it, it was just the strangest feeling. But, but you're correct because there's, so, you know, hotels that have been around for so long. It, it, it's basically, you know, things happen, you know, humanity happens. You know, I would, I would notice in particular, uh, like just your nighttime dream. Um, and how dra- drastically for me, when I would go to Europe or I'd go outside the country and visit different geographical areas, I, I seem to notice that my dreams would be completely altered as if you were surrounded by a whole different set of, right. soul- of souls. 
yeah. floating around. Yeah. And I so believe that. Yeah. We've known each other for a long time. You were nice enough to uh, appear on my record, uh, Driving Towards the Daylight. And uh, so, so is your son, Harry. And, um, you know, one of the things I always ask people, like, who is your musical host? Who, who is the person that put music in your, in your, in your, in your, in your view? And, and how did you get your first guitar? And how did you decide on the guitar? Well, uh, the guitar actually, uh, my dad bought, put the first guitar in the house. Um, he was a, he was a music lover and not a musician. Uh, he loved, he loved all those quirky hits, like from the late fifties and stuff, but he, he liked, uh, like the Mills brothers and stuff way back then. And he loved guitar music. Um, he didn't have a big record collection or anything like that, but he just, it was kind of cool to him, you know, and he brought home an acoustic guitar from his office that his secretary had. And right. it sat, sat in our dining room for the longest time and didn't really, didn't really catch on to me. I was in, in uh, orchestras at school. I was playing the trumpet. And um, so I was exposed to a lot of, you know, great, school programs which i sorely miss i mean there was music was such a, a part of my uh school growing up you know and it just, it's it's a shame that all that is gone and our public system's pretty much gone but then um my father again uh bought a guitar um a japanese guitar called winston for about 25 dollars. you remember those kind of oh yeah oddball things and that was it and uh i just took off uh i got uh, i got infected and um you know and i was like i i didn't have an amplifier and my my older brother was in broadcast school he had a wall and sack tape recorder i found out i could plug it, the guitar into the input and the output i plugged in the i plugged it into the speaker in the television right <laughs> and yeah. that's how i that's how i started playing um my my first electric guitar experience yeah you could also i mean i remember messing around my grandfather's uh he had a he had like a like one of those tabletop record players and i figured out the phono jack was nothing but an input and if you stuck yeah. it, you know it, it was a quarter inch if you stuck it in you could get this like gnarly distorted sound because you know i had a solid state dean markley amp that wasn't very distorted and i wanted it really distorted like so i could play slide like the blues guys and, yeah. Of course, the record player died a few minutes later, but it sounded good at the time, you know? Yeah. Well, they always die when they sound the best. That's when they go. It's, 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 it's like, it's amazing. Like when you were growing up and, and um, you, you went to Berkeley, uh, I was, I was, uh, I was surprised to read, like not surprised, but, but intrigued to read that you went to the Berkeley School of Music in Boston and studied. I did for not, not for very long because, uh, it's interesting. I was there for my first two semesters, and um, and I got I, I took a summer like when the summer came around. I went down to Nantucket Island. I had this gig, built-in gig, play at this club, free housing, and um, so I went down there to play with them, and and they were kind of friends of these guys, and it just started out called Aerosmith, and that's where right. I first heard about them. And it was a few weeks later in the summer, we were playing up in New Hampshire and Joe Perry and Tom Hamilton came 
to see us play. And then a few weeks later, Joe called me up and said, hey, hey, and rest is history. Well, you know, like, that's the thing. It's like, you know, I, I remember the days of like when people would call you up back. You actually had to be by your phone at your house. You know, now yeah. you, 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 you can be reached anywhere, you know. You, exactly. you know some, of your, yeah. some of your early bands I was reading about, that they have the greatest names, okay? Two in particular, okay? There's there's Teapot Dome, and, yeah. then, and, then, and then there's some play on words, which I, I just thought was great. Symbols of resistance. Yeah. Spelled C-Y-M-B-A-L-S yeah. of resistance. And just in time, meaning J-U-S-T-I-N-T-Y-M-E. I mean, that was, yeah. like, it was so, I mean, like, you couldn't get away with that now. I mean, you could, but it was, like, it, it was so, it, it, back in those days, it was so authentic because it was, like, you know, what are we going to call ourselves? Symbols of resistance, you know? And it was, yeah. like, you know, this. So, so you met you met the guys from Aerosmith. Were you familiar with their work at that time? Were, were, or were they just kind of a band just kicking around clubs in, in the Northeast? Not even clubs. Uh community so that we were all you know they were hadn't even been together um i had no i i didn't know anything about them i'd never heard them play um as a matter of fact when uh, about a couple weeks later joe says let's hang out and then he asked me to be in the band, I, and I told him, I don't know. I wasn't really sure. So I said, I'd never seen him play. Right. So I went I went to see them play. Um, they played at the Lakewood Ballroom in Menden, Mass., where Joe was from that area or from that town. And I was, I was very impressed. They were, they were taking off and doing Who, you know, stuff from the Who album. And, right. Um, so I was like, oh, this is completely up my alley. And it was, and it was a two guitar band, you know. And ever since I saw Humble Pie, I saw Humble Pie um, at the Boston Garden, and I was like, "That's it, right. that's the formula." Two guitars, both two different styles, a powerhouse drummer, and hopefully somebody can sing their butt off, <laughs> like Steve Marriott. Like Steve Marriott, yeah. Um, so that was my kind of what I was hoping to find, and there it was like about as close as it could possibly come. And you, so you you joined in what 1971, Aerosmith officially? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And how long did it take for the band to go from playing like just regional dates to being discovered? You know, by you know, like producers like Jack Douglas, and yeah, I mean the history is so well written on 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 Aerosmith, but like, was there a moment? in your in your in the band's existence where all of a sudden everybody just started to notice uh a very small cadre of people were noticing um but as far as um getting uh, like sort of national attention took a while our, our very first record came and bang we sold forty thousand copies all in new england because we were a right. boston band no one else knew who we were, and they couldn't. I mean, the record company was ready to just—we're done. This isn't going to work. Uh, that's when you know our managers said, "Listen, get in that station wagon, and we'll find you gigs and just go." Right. So you know that was the mission, you know. And when we got to Detroit, 
they just adopted us yeah. because it was such a hard rock town. Detroit became like our second home. I mean, we were like all up and down, Flint, Sac, you name it, you know. And then we started playing with Kiss all the time there. And we just, it was like, oh, man. So the Midwest, and the Midwest is still, to me, the, the real home of this. It's not, you know, the whole East, West Coast jaded thing. You can still go there and rock. The home of Rick Nielsen, you know. Exactly, you know. Yeah. Rockford, yeah. Illinois. Yeah. You know, the one thing, it is, it is blue-collar music. And, you know, I mean, like, you know, I grew up in upstate New York, and, and Aerosmith was always on the radio because it was blue-collar music. It was a blue-collar town. Same as was right. Grand Funk Railroad and and Cheap Trick and, you know, Alice Cooper and, you know, Kiss. And, you know, Kiss was a little bit more glamorous in their, their approach with the makeup and the blowing of things up. But, but you know, it, was, it, was, it appealed to working class. And and that's that's something that's always been special about you know your band and and you know especially your playing because it was it was just meat and potatoes rock and roll. Yes, it was um, interesting about Kiss. The first we played with them in New Jersey for the very first time, and I heard them from like dressing room area. And I was like, wow, this is rocking out severely. You know, and I I went out to look, and I'd never seen. The, so they, they had to doing the whole thing. And I'm, I swear, I thought to myself, they're cheating. This is cheating. <laughs> you know what I mean? They were like, not only did they have the powerful rock, rock thing, but they had this whole other thing that they kind of borrowed from the Japanese uh, theater. Right. And it was so powerful. And But I thought, oh, it's cheating. You can't do that and that. How can you combine that, you know? Uh, but it, man, it was so effective and, and just so cool. What, what was it like when, you know, you, when you did toys in the attic, did you yeah. know it was a special record? Did you know that you, you most likely will be playing those songs for the rest of your life? A and B, did you woodshed those songs on the road before you went in and recorded them? We didn't know, not on the road. We we did a lot of pre-production with uh, Jack Douglas and kind of set up in this barn and day after day, week after week, we did the wood shedding. And, uh, and of course, none of it, you know, we tip, whenever we went in and finally parked ourselves in the record plant, we were far from done or even having enough songs to finish the record. Typically no lyrics yet. Right. Um, and uh, but so we did that that woodshedding. I don't think we ever comprehended the impact of it. Um, kind of knew that you know these are cool riffs to play, and right. and it was kind of a lot of it was going together very well. But uh, I for one no had I didn't I didn't get the impact of it. I don't I don't think it's hard to remember, but I don't believe I did. Well, like, but I love I loved recording those records because there were sixteen track recordings. So it, you really had to be very well thought out how you laid, you know, okay, the drums are gonna be on one and two. And then so it was pretty well mapped out. And then you would have tracks, you'd have a guitar solo track, they would have shakers on it here and tambourine and 
you know, so it was, it was really kind of artful and all the mixes were all done by hand. And so it was, you know, you have four guys at the desk and I, I mean, I just loved it because nowadays it's like, it's like almost you just think about it and it's done. <laughs> well, yeah, there's, a, there's a lot of manipulation of sound now where you, you could tune things, you could tune guitars. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day um, on this show, and he was saying that like they, there's programs now where real guitar players have kind of played every inversion of chords. So if you have the wherewithal in Pro Tools, you could build real guitar tracks without harming a guitar player in the process. It's like you're like, wow, that's that's a that's a different way of doing it, you know? I mean, because because everything that you did was based on performance you're capturing this 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 three and a half minutes and yeah maybe maybe you could punch in you could punch in a little bit but but it was more of an entirety of a performance do you, do, you, do you think that's what makes those records special absolutely absolutely because you had to you had to capture that the the essence and the fire of it and of course they're all live performances um you know with the vocals and guitar solos not in there yet, but uh, that's just was standard. But it was, it's all about getting that fire. And of course, we, like we did our first album in those days. You know, they had the red light in the right. studio, like oh, we're recording. I mean, we had to turn that off because we'd do a run through, you know, and uh, great, let's roll it. And then the red light would come on. You'd be like, oh god, the red light's on. And yeah. you wouldn't, you know. And then all of a sudden, you're thinking. It's like, you know, you couldn't do that. So, um, you know, we turn the red light off and then we do a run through and then the Jack would go, you know, OK, we got it, you know, because right. the run through would be the, the one where you nailed it. It's like I, I always hated like when I did guitar solos, if I didn't get it on the first track, it'd be like, I'm not going to get it. Right. You know, I, I, I was always like, I, I take it out of the box where it's just totally fresh. And uh, once I started thinking too much about it, I would kind of lose the guts of it, you know. How many, you know, uh, how, how, how did you guys, how did you and Joe in particular divide up the guitar duties? You know, and you guys probably still do this to this day. It's like, you know, both of you have very, very unique styles and, 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 and it's a, you know, cause uh, we did that show together a few years ago at, at the London calling uh, festival. And I was, I was, you know, privileged enough to watch you guys from the side of the stage. And what I did notice was this this constant pitch and yaw conversation between you, yourself and Joe. And it was like, you go, you could tell these guys have been doing this for a long time because you, you, it was almost symbiotic and almost like you were reading his mind. And he was reading yours. So how did you guys come up with that process? It was totally organic uh, from the beginning. You um, we weren't we very rarely sat down like next to each other and, and, and like, okay, we're going to work this out. He would play something and I would just like, suddenly I knew what to play behind it. I knew how, and, and it was just like that. Always. Right. Never worked. And he never kind of sat down and this is what I'm going to do. So I'm do I would just sort of build a counterpart to what he was doing uh, or just lay it beef with the bass and drums. Um, and that's just how it happened. And it just was, 
that's why it feels the way it, it, it does because it is totally organic. And and you know it does it does you know because I would notice that if Joe was playing a Les Paul you'd have more of a Fender looking thing, and vice versa if he had a Fender looking thing you'd have a Les Paul or something like that, and you're filling in the gaps in the music, and then and then and then you just well in in, in our experience at, at that at that gig just annihilated the, the entire days worth of bands with those with those things called songs that you have so many of you know it would just hit after hit after hit. I mean, it's at this point, I mean, it's it's how hard is it to make a set list? Because, you know, there's tens of thousands of people that want to hear the hits, but you can sit there for three and a half hours and play every hit you had. But how do you keep it? How do you keep it fresh for the band? We're masking. Well, um, that was always uh, later in years and in the recent history been a real struggle for myself. Because we always would have to play a certain amount of what people want to hear. I mean, that's what they're there for. And right. uh, so you want to give them what they want to hear. Um, and then you sort of have these B songs, uh, um, side, B sides. And, and I was always pushing, you know, to play. Do we have all this stuff? Great tracks from rocks and toys and all this stuff. And I think, man, we got to, you know, no one's going to play this stuff. We're the only people that are going to play this stuff and we don't play it. Right. It's like, we're, you know, we're cheating ourselves. We're cheating the audience. And I, I it was a losing battle most of the time. So, yeah, it's, it, is, it is what it is. That's that's the that's the part about being in a band. It's a it's, you know, the democracy of it. Everything's a, a compromise and you got to be. You know, and you got to be willing to work inside that. So that's why so many bands fail, whether it's girlfriends or outside jobs or an inability to be able to slip and slide with each other so that you can make it work. Mm -hmm. You know, as I, I found interesting and very courageous was at the height of your, it, yeah, I wouldn't say it, it was a comeback, so to speak, you know, like you, you had Walk This Way with Run DMC, which was song off of Toys in the Attic, and that became a hit, and that's like, you know, that introduced a whole new generation to Aerosmith, and then records like Permanent Vacation, Pump, Get a Grip, Nine Lives, and Kevin Shirley produced, and, and in, the, in all of that, you guys decide to do a blues record, Honkin' on Bobo, which is a great blues record. You know, I mean, you know, I would imagine there was some people that, that had $2,000 suits on that said, hey, let's just keep the hits going, you know? So how did you guys decide to do, like, no, we're just going to do, we're going to do some blues. We got we to exercise the demons. Well, we, we had made that decision um, long before that. But like you said, trying to get people to go along with the idea and resist the temptation, you know, for more hits and radio-friendly stuff. It was, it was a struggle, and it sort of at the, at that point, it was kind of a little bit of eh, we're doing it anyways, and you know, getting a, a somewhat of a budget out of them to do it. But um, it was just something we had to get out of our system because it was such a part of what made us who we are. Right. And and right. it's a basis for for everything, you know. We're, we're we were a product of American blues music that was reconstituted in London and then came back over and was like 
I mean, that's how I learned about all this stuff right. from the guys that were listening to it in England. Right. Well, played a last Paul through a Marshall. I was just like, ah, my God, what is this? Right. You know, how, how important to you was the Beano record? Because that that was to me like like a lot of a lot of people who play guitar. That was the that was the gateway to Howlin' Wolf and Otis Rush and you know all those guys. I, you know, I just I still listen to that. I, I mean. I'm always like you. I think always listening to something about listening to the roots music that makes me play differently. I, right. I start phrasing a little better, or I don't know what it is, but it just touches a place deep inside me. Um, so it's an always an inspiration. You know, it's it, I, I interviewed John Mayall for this show. Yeah. And what I didn't know was was like he goes he goes it was so hard to keep my band together because because and one day I had Peter Green and then he would go do something else Eric Clapton would go to Greece but then he'd come back but then we'd get more money if Eric Clapton was in the band and then my drummer would leave and and it was like he was putting ads in like Melody Maker magazine it's like it's John Mayall you would think it'd be like because those records are so important to us that you'd be like oh my god anybody wants to play with John Mayall it was like this poor guy he's driving around England trying to do five shows a week. And he couldn't keep his band together. I, I found that amazing, you know. It, it it is amazing. It's funny that like, we're, but when I talk about that that record and early Clapton, that's still that's still the basis for my my tone. Right. It's that stuff that he did then. Uh, it's like my stole my measuring stick to this day. Right. Um, you know and. I've gone through all like back when we did toys and rocks. Um, you know, I played through both Joe and I played a hundred watt half stack mm -hmm. and no, no, and no pedals, nothing. And, um, solos, everything. Um, not all the time, but, um, and that, that's kind of where my head starts at. It's like right. a JTM 45 into a 412 cabinet and, if that don't work, uh, put it away. <laughs> yeah, how 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 much do you find your tone varies depending on what you plug it in? Do you have do you, do you kind of just manifest it in your mind, going, I sound like Brad Whitford. I, I'm you know channeling my heroes and everything, and then you can plug it to a Tweed Champ or a JTM 45, and still somehow it sounds like yourself. Um. I'm not exactly sure who I'm talking to in my head, but it it, it just goes like, um, and then I, oh, yeah, this is, that's it. It's just like something happens between the brain, heart, and the ears. And, and it, it's also the key is all of a sudden I feel like I can play. Right. Um, yeah. Because the sound's right, whether it's a really clean sound or, or it's more saturated, whatever, but... And, I, you know, I've gotten so, I've kind of gone back and gotten so much cleaner with my guitar because it's like the only way I think you can really hear what the guitar is doing, it's got to be naked. It's like, right. then it really can, then it has a real voice. You haven't, you're not trying to disguise the voice, like, you know, right. and that, that's where the, the, I don't know, that's the, the guts that's the real tone it's a you know i know you you know 
you know, I know you know. Well, you know, it's it's funny. Like like today is the first day. Um, just not to timestamp our interview, but today's the first day. In this is the first time in seven years I've gotten some of these things out, and or maybe almost a decade, and some more. And I've decided. I said, you know, I've used the same kind of rig for almost a decade, and I said I want to see if I can still play my old rig, and if it's you know, because you become a different player. Do you, do you ever like go into the storage locker and pull out the half stacks from the seventies and be like, let's see if these things still work. And then, you know, and then, you know, go, Hey, maybe I could just use these in the, you know, in the live rig like I used to straight in no pedals or, or is the catalog of the band kind of more evolved where you need more of a, a tone palette, not to sound like a hipster. Well, I'm, I'm basically going for the, uh, the same sound, but I'm, I'm typically using uh, more modern amplifiers that I know are not going to, that are much more consistent. The tones right. are going to start changing on me from one gig to the other, or uh, this one is great, but it melts down all the time. So, you know, I got, uh, I, I want I don't like being interrupted by right. the, equipment failing or shift this suddenly that well what happened to the tone and so i just got into more uh modern amps that basically doing the marshall the jtm 45 sound or the 100 watt lead sound that i that that's home to me right and right. i can plug i have it so i can plug in the strat or telly or less paul and i don't have to go adjust anything you know right and that, to me, that's because uh, uh, I don't like to be distracted. I just want to play. I want to hear the sound I, I want to hear and then let it rip, you know. What makes a good gig for you? Like, when you get off stage, is it is it like, you know, is it crowd reaction? Or is it like, man, the band was just on fire? And the, could the, can, can you have it both ways? Can the crowd be flat and the band on fire? Or the crowd's on fire and the band flat? A lot of times, at the size of the of the crowd, for me, it um, it much better to be in like a a six hundred seat club, right? With the the audience is um, you know like a foot away from your feet, and that was just always so electrifying. That energy that you weren't the energy of the music and the audience all just congealing into one fireball right. Right. and not having that geographical separation, which that can work too when you get in a large arena and sometimes you get that same thing happens, but it's so much more intense in a small environment. And that was always that. That's when the sweat would be really dripping off and you just, you just didn't want to stop. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Yeah. And it's like, you know, you could see everybody. You know, I always, I always, I always try to tell people, it's like, it's like when I'm up there, like even in big theaters, I don't see anybody. I can maybe make out the first two rows, three rows. After that, it just, it just, it's like a, just kind of just a black curtain in front of you. And the only time you know there's people there is like if when you stop the song and they go, you know, it's, you lose that connection, you know. That eye, that eye contact. In the small places where you can actually look people right in the eyes, yeah, you know that, and that, and that energy takes, I think, just takes on another level. Absolutely, 
What are the plans for the band uh, going forward? I saw I saw that you guys moved to a European tour from this year to next year. I, I saw that on one of the one of the internet places. Um, do you have any plans to go back to Vegas and, and keep the, the residency going? Um, no. Uh, um, and the European, the European tours, uh, they tried to plan one last year, talking about next year, and it's just, it's a pipe dream right now. It's just right. nothing's gonna, nothing's gonna happen for a long time. Um, right. And you know, I, I, I sometimes I'm not sure what my partners are thinking when they think that's gonna happen, but I. You know, and not only, you know, and it was just another interesting thing about going to Europe now because of Brexit. It's so much harder to get work visas now, uh, visas because of that. It's going to, that's going to be a whole no other nightmare if we ever, but I mean, I have my doubts about uh, Aerosmith uh, ever really performing again. So at this stage, because some of the, some of the, the age is becoming a real factor and you know, it is what it is. You know, um, I, I, you know, it's 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 funny because I, you know, like, I, you know, I'm 43 years old, and our last show was March 12, 2020, in Milwaukee, and the crowd was electric, and our band was good, and what's gotten me through the kind of the ups and downs of, like, well, is this over? Are we done? You know. It yeah. has been, you're only as good as your last show. And I said, you know, we were pretty damn good in our last show. If that's it, we're done, you know? Yeah, exactly. I, I have to agree with that. You know, leave them wanting more. So in yeah. case you do come back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, tell me, uh, tell me a little about, you know, cause we're, we, we bond on, on, uh, on the gear and, um, on the guitars. Uh, tell me about your 59. Do you break that out every once in a while? Not a whole lot. I don't. Um, uh, I don't know why I'm still so. Uh, I mean, I probably break it out more now because I'm not traveling. Mm -hmm. I get real paranoid about traveling with it, and um, you know, I had the you know the on your recommendation, I had Joe do my frets, and uh, that just made it even more wonderful. Yeah. And then I got really in that 58 uh, that you remember I got from Norm's that it's just, I just, that's one you could just look at. It's so fascinating because right. it doesn't have an, an inch of wear on it. It's like a time machine guitar. Yeah, it's a, but, it's a uh, great story, by the way. This is a great story. Is This was five years ago, maybe. And my girlfriend at the time um, and... Uh, a friend of mine, we, we go to Phil Susan's sushi joint. He had a, he had a, and I was like, and, and I'm, we're just sitting in a booth. And next thing you know, I spot, I don't spot you, even though I, I, I know you and you're my friend. I don't spot you. I spot the damn brown case. <laughs> you just picked up this gold top from Norm. And I go, what the shit, what the, what's, what's up with this brown case? And I go, oh, my God, it's Derek St. Holmes and Brad Whipper. You know, and we're, we're just sitting in a sushi place. There's a lot of people in there. And, um, you know, do you, do you still get the bug to, like, you know, go to Norm and go, like, what do you got in the crates and stuff like that? Or, or have you kind of been through it all at this point? Um, well, I've been through a lot of it, but I, I have to admit, if, if, when I see things like that, 
I, I just, my blood goes crazy, you know? Right. Um, and I have that, you know, you, you were talking to Rick on the show, uh, Nielsen, about, you know, yeah. the collector bug that guys like us have. And uh, um, that just doesn't go away. It doesn't go away. Yeah. So, but it was funny with that because, you know, anybody can come in with a brown case, but you knew that what era that case was by the shape of it. And that, and that was pretty impressive. Oh, something special in there. It's a blessing and a curse, <laughs> but I was like, I know a five latch when I see one. Come yeah. on, let's see what you got, you know? <laughs> I, I love one that. Of the, one of the coolest cases I have is I bought a, a 65 Strat in Australia. And along with it, I bought a, J a JTM 45, the heavy wood cabinet. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, from, I've gotten, uh, last time I had it serviced, a guy wrote me like a five page letter. Mm -hmm. I've never seen, I've never gotten to work on one of these and stuff. And it's cool. But I got the fender came in a export case. Oh, nice. And, and I'd never seen a fender export case. It was wild. And then I, of course, I still have it. But, um, and I've never seen another one, the only one I've ever seen. So I don't know, they might have done that just for a while or something. But. They did, the Fender did export cases. Sometimes they would ship the guitars over in boxes, and then the Europeans yeah. would put cases to them. Or Fender had a different, for about two years, 64, 65, maybe even to 66, they were using the, they were, it was an upcharge, they call it the sunglass case. It was like molded plastic and it said Fender, but they all fell apart, you know? But it was actually more money. Yeah. It was just something that makes some extra money. Um, before we wrap up, tell me about your talented sons. I I have a, the utmost respect for Harry Graham and and uh, your your oldest son, who, whose name escapes me. Um, Zach. Zach, Zach. And yeah. uh, all very talented, all in the business. Your, your son, Zach, he, he's a photographer. He's photographed the band. Graham's in Tyler Bryant in, in the Shakedown, and and I just saw Harry on uh, on on Saturday Night Live. You must be so proud of that. I feel like Doctor Frankenstein. I created these guitar monsters, you know. Right. Um, it is. It's it's uh, I it, it's just a great feeling. It's a great feeling. Um, and Har I mean Harry, uh, he's incredible. He's just he's so the guy could be a professor. He's so mm -hmm. smart. Um. And he's so grounded, and he's and he's in the studio now, right now, um, working on a project. He's in the studio because like a guy from the Midwest goes to L.A. and he's like working all the time. Studio, it's kind of unheard of because it's usually a lockout out there, right. out in L.A. in that area. But um, you know, he's amazing. He called me up. You know, he always calls me up with guitar in hand. He called me up one day and he goes, oh, I've been working on Chet Atkins stuff. And he starts playing some Chet stuff for me. And I'm like, wow, amazing. I said, when did you start working on that? And he goes, this morning. I'm like, right. <laughs> what are you kidding me? Right. But he's that he's he can kind of do any he's mastered all these styles. It's yeah. just astounding. And, you know, when I listen to the Graham play. In, in in Tyler's uh, band, I, I I really you know I hear the Widford DNA. He 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 you know close your eyes it's you you know and and, yeah. and he but he has his own thing but he his rhythm tone and his his sense of of parts is very much rooted 
in 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 your legacy. And I I I always I always like you know watching those guys because they they they're just they have so much energy. They have more energy in one show than I've had in my entire career. I said I I don't know how they do it, but they do it. You know. But um, it's 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 great to see that the music lives on, you know, in different forms. To that, to know that um, the stuff that got us so fired up when we were young, to know that it still works, mm-hmm. you know, it hasn't gone somewhere. That's that that that's the people are prone to it. My kids were, and you know, they saw it and they went, "Whoa." It's just drawn to it. This like wow, this unique energy, and to see that it's still as magnetic as ever, and it's just, it's great. It's great. It's great. great. Well, Brad, I'm 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 proud to know you. I'm proud to call you my friend, and um, I can't thank you enough for doing this as a as a as a as a fan first and and a friend. I just like on I I I tell I told my my friend who's the biggest Aerosmith in the, fan in the world. I go, he goes, what are you doing today? I go, I go interviewing Brad Whitford. He goes, you lucky bastard. I go, ah, spoken like a true upstate, you know? <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, right back at you, my friend. And uh, it's always a pleasure to, uh, to talk gear and stories and all that stuff. So, yeah, I look forward to yeah. actually seeing you in three dimensions when, when we get, when we get out of this bubble. Uh, oh man, I can't wait to play again. Yeah, no kidding, yeah. no kidding. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee for his work with Aerosmith, of course he is. Ladies and gentlemen, the great Brad Whitford. This has been live from Nerdville. Thank you very much for tuning in. What an honor it's been for me. <laughs>